One of the things that really stood out in that report on money laundering last week from the Cullen Commission is the role and the impact that the BC Lottery Corporation had on the entire situation. It was all about revenue, bringing in as much revenue as possible. And while Attorney General David Eby says things have changed at the BC Lottery Corporation since, won't there be any consequences for the people who allowed all this to happen? Well, Sam Cooper has been looking into the BCLC situation and has been writing about it. His latest piece is at globalnews.ca, and Sam Cooper joins us now to talk more about it. Good morning, Sam. Good morning, Simi. So it really is clear from the report, isn't it, that that things were just kind of running amok at BCLC. There was no check on what was perhaps the right thing to do as opposed to just generating all this money. That's for sure. Uh, As you know, in the Cullen report, uh, the commissioner found no evidence of corruption, yet uh, I found that buried into the report, uh, using some careful language, uh, the commissioner certainly pointed to financial incentives that, you know, reasonably we can judge could be an incentive or motivation behind just this massive flood of cash. So, The details are uh, Cullen pointed to emails from the BCLC CEO in 2011 and 2012. And these were really pretty harsh emails to his uh, executive staff. They said the government, uh, that is the shareholder of BCLC, is very keen to increase revenue. And uh, executives, uh, you will not get your bonuses from the government this year, uh, unless you meet these revenue targets, we need to raise our revenue for 2014 up by at least 40 million. And one email from that CEO at the time, Michael Graydon, even said, "Be creative. We have a monopoly on uh, this industry. You need to meet those targets." Uh, the the words, "or you will not get your incentives, and you will unleash consequences," are even used. So these are, uh, this is, Cullen said those emails run the risk, in his words, of uh, being perceived as having executives focus more on uh, financial motivations and government revenue rather than anti-money laundering compliance. And Simi, I'll add one more thing. Commissioner Cullen tied those uh, revenue-driving emails to stunning allegations from BC casino investigators who said in 2012 they were told by their bosses not to interview the gamblers who are bringing in these bags of cash, especially to Richmond's River Rock Casino. And Cullen's report says uh, one investigator really uh, caused this when uh, a great Canadian executive called BCLC and complained. He did not want BCLC investigators to question the gamblers about cash. One more point, the context in the background here is that the regulator, these casino investigators I've talked about, a secret RCMP investigation was going to BCLC and saying, we know this is a Vancouver model. Casinos are competing for these businessmen from China. They're getting cash from loan sharks. You need to stop it. And it wasn't stopped. Again, uh, revenue generation appears to have been the goal if we dive into the Cullen report. That's the kind of stuff, Sam, I know that makes people just shake their head. These, this is where all those anecdotal stories it feels like were coming from all those years ago when we first started talking about this. So then what are the consequences of that? Like whatever happened to the people who were willfully turning a blind eye, as you described there? Well, uh, as you know, there's some of those whistleblowers indeed are the ones that have been leaking some information to reporters such as myself and others for years. 
exactly about these anecdotes of this crazy cash coming in. It was known it was all tied to Hong Kong and China. Bosses were turning a blind eye. Uh, Cullen's report, as you know, pointed all the way to the former premier and the former gaming minister and said they were very clearly warned this cash that was clearly criminally derived was rising exponentially. They didn't act and yet it wasn't corrupt. No evidence of political corruption. So uh, really, there, there, there don't appear to be any consequences, uh, except for some people being named and shamed. And on the other hand, Commissioner Cullen and, and his uh, lawyers have really slammed the RCMP and FinTrack, Canada's federal agencies, uh, for, for their inaction. And uh, the result is Cullen has called for a provincial uh, anti-money laundering unit and commissioner to fill the gap. So you know that that's a those are powerful recommendations but Cindy I have to tell you I'm hearing from sources in Canadian intelligence and the RCMP that say look this is hogwash there was direct old fashioned there is old fashioned corruption of the highest level organized crime from other countries that is into our politicians it's into federal judges Simi, I'm telling you some new information today there's deep corruption involved and Cullen didn't find it so some people are upset Wow. Okay. So Sam, you're saying there's a lot of disappointment out there that people were hoping that, and no other province has really done this, right? But people were, so people were hoping that this report would be the one to kind of blow the lid off things. Well, uh, exactly. People in Ottawa, politicians, people in Toronto, uh, intelligence sources across Canada. Again, I'm saying police, intelligence. I'm hearing from U.S. government sources. They say the situation, of course, you know, we now know Vancouver, the scale as Cullen, Commissioner Cullen said, vast uh, money laundering from sophisticated criminals. They've turned BC into a clearinghouse. But uh, people, uh, people I talk to, of course, say these very same criminal networks are using Toronto. Uh, they're using Montreal. And uh, this indeed does connect to very big concerns about foreign governments being involved and using illegal casinos to corrupt Canadian politicians. So I, I can tell you that there are sources uh, in law enforcement in Canada and the United States that want to see very much more come from uh, what we now know about the scale that came out of the Cullen report. However, they would say justice uh, from the corruption involved did not result from the Cullen report. Wow. So the work is not done for you then, Sam. It sounds like the information keeps coming in. There's much more to, to know and report, Simi. And you, I've said this, I think, to you. Uh, I never stop being shocked. And when a report comes out and, and uh, people come out and say, look, a lot of powerful people were let off the hook, of course, that's going to lead to more information coming to me. And I would sort of finish up with this thought. I was very disappointed that very clear evidence that uh, prominent BC lawyers and law offices were directly involved in money laundering, even, you know, criminal threats being made in front of lawyers around real estate extortions. And look, uh, I'm hearing from people that say the Cullen Commission gave lawyers a great big pass. So that's another issue we need to look into. Another issue that we're going to be reading about from your stories. Uh, Sam, thank you. Thanks, Cindy. Sam Cooper, Global National Investigative Journalist. Read his latest piece. It's at globalnews.ca. He is not done writing about this or talking about this. Just because the Cullen Commission tabled its report on money laundering, there are a lot of questions left unanswered, and the path is in there. If you read through that report, and it is a long one and an extensive one, but when you read through it, as Sam pointed out, there's all sorts of different avenues where questions still need to be asked about maybe the politicians weren't found 
to have uh, definitely been involved, but there's a lot of people who looked the other way. This is Mornings with Simi. Should Stratas be allowed to tell you whether or not you can rent out your unit? Yesterday on the show, we were talking with Saanich City Councillor Zach DeVries, and it was about how Saanich is trying to keep more homes available for renters. They're trying to open things up in the rental market. And one of the ways in which they're doing that is with new development, they are not allowing Stratas to ban rentals. And boy, did that ever spark a response from you. On both sides of this issue, I heard people arguing and saying this was a great idea because you shouldn't be told what you can do with property that you own. And I heard others say, no, no, they want to live in a building where it is owner-occupied only. They don't want to have renters coming and going from their building. So yes, definitely got people fired up. So we thought, let's talk more about this. One of the things that the Saanich Councillor said was that he believed not only should more communities do this, but that the province should step in and help to also make it potentially retroactive. Now, there is no sign that's actually going to happen, but it certainly is a very interesting discussion. So joining us now is Tony Juventi, who's the Executive Director of the Condo and Homeowners Association of BC. Tony, thanks for being back with us. It's a pleasure. Good morning, Siri. What do you think of this idea, Tony, this idea that buildings shouldn't, strata shouldn't be allowed to tell people whether or not they can rent out their unit? Well, it's it's kind of um, a lost leader in a strange way because since 2010, January 1st, 2010, developers have imposed pretty much across the board on all of their new developments um, a rental disclosure statement excluding any of the units from rental bylaws, which essentially means everybody who purchased a unit since 2010, um, the Strata Corporation, even if they did approve a rental bylaw, wouldn't apply to any of those units anyhow. So we've had several hundred thousand units built since then. It's an interesting um, argument, though, because one of the things we've discovered in doing surveys, both within the city and within the rural areas, is that buildings pre-2010 that actually have rental bylaws also, um, and most of the rental bylaws have a percentage permitted. It's not a total ban, but most of them are 100% occupied. Whereas buildings post-2010 without any rental restrictions, which is pretty much all of them, have about a 17 to 30% vacancy rate because they were real attractions for speculators. But more important, um, the number of them that basically went over to Airbnb, which was a huge loss for the rental pools, was enormous. I, I don't think that rental bylaws will solve this problem. I think we will end up making communities that have a lot of families and retired persons vulnerable to speculators. But I think that the real issue that we have to look at is how many units do we lose every year to Airbnbs? I think, okay, that's a very interesting point. So you're saying like, well, this might be well-intentioned. Do you feel there are all sorts of unintended consequences here, uh, you know, to get around this? Well, exactly. If you're, if you're a speculator, you're certainly going to purchase in a building that has no rental bylaws, which are predominantly built the buildings that are post-2010 because you'll have no restrictions. You could have, you know, the argument that people are making that you shouldn't be told what you can or can't do with your unit. Well, um, the government has permitted Stratus to adopt bylaws to prohibit short-term accommodations, and local governments have really restricted them down to one per person. Whereas when we look closely at the buildings in our metropolitan areas, um, 
it's a vast number that are vacant are being used as Airbnbs. And it's, it's a huge impact on the rental inventory. Yeah. How big of a problem is this Airbnb situation? Well, when the surveys were first done pre-COVID, when we were still, you know, active with tourism, um, the met the Vancouver area alone was estimating that there were probably 25,000 units used as Airbnbs. Um, and these weren't resident Airbnbs where you stayed with an owner. These were individuals who owned 10, 20, 50 units who were basically running them like a very lucrative hotel system, which is fine. And for investors, if that's what you want and your buildings permit it, um, and the local bylaws permit it, that's just fine. But the difficulty is we're trying to put the blame of a shortage of rental inventory on buildings that are already close to 100% occupied. I don't know how that's going to solve the problem because if we start moving people out of those buildings, they're going to have to live somewhere anyhow. Okay, so the problem then, I guess, is that some of the people that I heard from said like, oh, they would prefer to work in it. They prefer to live, I should say, in an owner occupied building. But the downside of that is as well, then some of those units might not ever get rented. You wouldn't have neighbors. There might be nobody living in that unit. Yeah, but the vacancy rate on buildings with rental bylaws was below 1%. That's, that's not the issue at all. Uh, the issue really, the re- and there is a huge demand for families and for individuals who want to live in units to be purchasing units. There is no shortage of that. The difficulty that we're having is we've lost so many rentals over the 20 years from rental buildings being converted to condos or no rentals being built as the population grew um, that now turning around and putting the pressure on all of the property owners prior to 2010, who for 20, 30, 40 years manage their buildings very well with limited rentals in their buildings would then potentially be told, hey, by the way, no more rentals. And it opens the door. It's open season by speculators on on buildings then. Um, don't forget also that a lot of those buildings across the province, Victoria, Vancouver, Kelowna, Richmond, Lonsdale, Keyover and on the North Shore, so many of those buildings are older buildings that have quite a few um, families and seniors in them because they're larger units. Um, when those units are, when those units, the rentals would be gone, speculators move in, and we've already had this problem with several buildings. Um, the real goal is to get these buildings torn down and converted and redeveloped. Doesn't really solve a problem. But the, you know, the government introduced the rental um, exemption on um, January 1st, 2010, um, and that, that has had a significant impact in the number of units available. But if you look at the, you know, the central downtown areas of our um, major districts, right across the board, the vacancy rates in those buildings are still quite high. They're still between minimum 17 to 35 percent as a result of a lot of speculators, people who have vacation property, people using them for Airbnbs or people just buying and holding them. None of those buildings have rental bylaws and those units aren't being rented. However, the real issue is the affordability because of the location, the rental cost on them is extremely high. So do you think then that that rule change, as you pointed out on January 1st, 2010, did that lead to all the crazy speculation and the building of these kind of micro units and one bedroom condos, do you think, in the years after that? Uh, I, I don't know that there has actually been study done on that to determine if that was the cr- contributing factor, but we certainly did see a change of the configuration of how many units and the size of units that were available. Um, and, you know, newer high-end buildings 
are not inexpensive for an investor to operate. So the rents are going to have to be higher. It doesn't provide affordable rental housing. You know, everybody talks about rental housing, lack of rental housing. The real issue here for so many people is affordable rental housing. And Airbnbs, the short-term accommodations, are not a Vancouver problem. They're a problem right across the province. And we see it in areas like Penticton and Campbell River, um, where we have really large retirement communities, but the units are being used more for short-term accommodations and, and mainly because that the yields and the profits are so much higher. All right, Tony, listen, thanks so much for talking to us about it. It's a pleasure. Good luck. Thanks. Yeah, it's Tony Giovanni, who's the Executive Director of the Condo and Homeowners Association of BC. I would love to hear from people who live in a stratified building, like are Airbnbs a problem in your building? And tell me what's been done about that. I know that stratas can often have a very difficult time taking action. If you've got a story, please tell me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Are you planning on traveling somewhere, perhaps even within Canada this summer? That's going to be your vacation. Well, according to Destination Canada, one in three Canadians have an interest in actually seeking out Indigenous travel experiences. Now, definitely with the pandemic and everything, I think it really amplified the demand for activities that can be done closer to home, but are still unique and special. And so the Indigenous Coastal Wildlife Collective has actually launched a new campaign to help British Columbians interested in those experiences find out more about what they're looking for. So joining us now is Chris Tate, the General Manager of Clahouse Wilderness Resort. Chris, thanks for being here. Hi, good morning. Thank you. Tell me about Clahouse Wilderness Resort. Yeah, Clahouse Wilderness Resort is a destination resort in Desolation Sound in British Columbia. It's within the Clahouse Territory. And guests come from all over Canada and visit us for Indigenous experiences, wildlife experience, grizzly bear viewing. And most importantly, all the tours are Indigenous-led. So when you go on uh, a boat tour or you're with those um, you know, while you're staying at the resort, you have an Indigenous guide with you, and that makes it a very special and unique experience. How popular has this become? Well, it's extremely popular. I mean, Canadians especially are are, are interested in, in learning about their own country, and particularly Indigenous people are really the most authentic tourism, you know, that you could have. You want to visit a place, you want to visit, you know, the people that call it their home, and, and there's nothing more authentic than having an Indigenous experience. So, yeah, I mean, people call me and they specifically say, I, I'm booking this because you're Indigenous business and, and I'm going to have an Indigenous guide with me. So it's extremely popular. And do you find that it's this is something that people are, are in particular seeking out these days? Yes. Yeah, I think so. As Canadians, absolutely. I mean, with, you know, with reconciliation, um, tourism offers a way to, you know, to, to bridge that gap and and create a, a way for reconciliation plus it's just uh it's just really fun to you know to go and experience canada and in our area the coast of bc is pretty special but to have a local guide an indigenous guide with you is um it just makes it extremely special and yes people are seeking that out so then how do you deal with that? Are you finding that it's more in demand these days or other companies that you've talked to also seeing this kind of demand? I think so. It's growing. I mean, everyone, you know, you know, we all know 
British Columbia is, is beautiful. We have whales, we have bears, we have amazing wildlife and, and scenery. But um, yeah, I think indigenous businesses now are recognizing that and, and, and you know, starting companies, starting new experiences, um, includes Wilderness Resort. This is our, our first full season. We actually opened during the pan- pandemic. Um, so it's a relatively new business, but it's, um, so the demand is there. Absolutely. Right. And it, it really sets it apart from just about everything else you can experience in, in British Columbia or travel anywhere in the world. You opened it during the pandemic. How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, it was, I mean, the Clahoos First Nation, uh, recognized, um, they bought the lodge and, um, yeah, we opened last year and, in, in, uh, right during the pandemic, but amazingly, we were we were pretty full. I mean, the demand is there. People are turning, you know, looking inwards. Of, what can I experience in my own backyard? And somewhere like Clahoos Wilderness Resort is one of those experiences. And there's other ones, too. Um, and that's, um, you know, and, and it's just a matter of, you know, pointing people to those experiences, whether you want to go on a grizzly bear viewing tour and watch bears in their natural habitat where they want to go to a lodge like this wilderness resort and, and have all your meals taken care of and, and go kayaking and, and, and have those indigenous guides with you. Um, right. You know, you can, the Canadians want to do that. And yeah, during the pandemic, obviously everyone turned inwards. Hey, what can I do in my own backyard? So it's been extremely popular, but now, the pandemic's over and we can travel, you know, a lot of places in the world again. And travel is opening back up. I think people are still like, wow, this is what we have here in British Columbia is, is pretty beautiful. special. And these, these indigenous experiences are, are um, you know, something unique. And, and it's the most, most authentic tourism and you can have in Canada. It sure sounds like it. Listen, Chris, thanks for telling us about it this morning. Yeah, you're really welcome. Thank you. I hope uh, your listeners can can check it out and, and, and see what's in their own backyard. I hope so too. That's Chris Tate, the general manager of Clahoos Wilderness Resort. You should definitely check it out. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, there were a lot of things that changed during the pandemic, things that we didn't have access to. For many people, that meant less of a connection to, less access to health care. So you would think, knowing that and kind of feeling that for so many people, that access to safe supply also would have dropped during that time. But a new study from UBC finds that actually wasn't the case. Let's get this explained to us. Stephanie Glegg joins us now, postdoctoral fellow at the BC Centre on Substance Use at UBC. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. So how is it that safe supply was different than, say, other people's just access to health care? Well, we see, uh, as you mentioned, closure in many health services or decreased access. With safe supply, one of the key factors that made it different was that uh, the pandemic health measures disrupted the drug supply, and many people anticipated that this would happen. And what we saw was the release of risk mitigation guidance here in BC to help reduce the risk of COVID transmission for people who use drugs, as well as to decrease the risk of toxic drug deaths because of the uh, changes in the drug supply that were observed, such as increased fentanyl concentration and the introduction of benzodiazepines to the toxic drug supply. 
So did that spur more doctors to become, you know, more educated about, you know, prescribing safe supply? Because I'd always heard leading up to this that that was one of the barriers that even though technically they could do it, many of them were a little bit reluctant to take that step. Yeah, we heard from lots of the prescribers that we spoke to that there was a, they experienced anxiety and fear around safe supply prescribing. And this was from those who were already prescribing it. So there was a sense that uh, there could be repercussions from the governing bodies, the regulatory colleges, or from governments uh, across Canada uh, or employers that uh, didn't approve of safe supply as a harm reduction approach. So that did impact many, many uh, providers and their willingness to provide it. Okay, but something changed during the pandemic. They, was it because of COVID then, do you think, that they felt more of a sense of urgency? Some people did start prescribing as a COVID risk mitigation strategy, but um, they quickly identified that their clients were dying, that they observed this rapid increase in overdose deaths even before the statistics came out, and that tension for change was real for them. They needed to do something to save save lives. So what kind of a difference has that access to safer supply or the increased access made? Well, we didn't have that within our scope of study. There are other researchers who are studying that right now that will be able to speak better to the uh, the effects of that. However, during our interviews, we did hear from providers about some of the impacts that it had for their clients. So in addition to not dying, some reported that their clients were able to access housing for the first time or that they were able to maintain employment some connected with family that they hadn't seen for years. Uh, And safe supply was often offered at places where other health services or social services were available. So they were able to access wound care or vaccines and and other health services that they might not otherwise have have seen. And so those differences to not just uh, being alive, but also mental health and quality of life were really real. Right. So you documented that there were 60 new sites prescribing safer supply uh, versus the 21 just a a couple of months earlier during the pandemic. So with that much of an increase, with that many more people accessing safer supply, why are we still seeing such a huge problem when it comes to people overdosing? Well, one thing is it's important to know where those uh, services were offered. And so... uh, They were very rarely available in rural areas, highly concentrated in large urban centers, but not all urban centers. And when we spoke with the providers, many told us, we asked about wait lists, many told us that they don't keep wait lists because there were too many people on the wait list that would never be seen. Many only offered safe supply to clients that they already had on their caseloads because they were worried about not being able to provide the quality of care that was required. Um, And uh, so the demand for safe supply is much higher than what was available. If you think about 60 sites, uh, 60 new sites across Canada, a total of 81 across Canada, that's very limited. And so what we need now is investment in safe supply so that those services can be sustained and scaled up. 
we were very surprised to hear that uh, 79% of the sites that we spoke to had no dedicated funding for safe supply services. So they were adding it onto the already funded services that they provide just off the side with no additional resources. Right. So that could end at any time, theoretically. That's right. I mean, we hear across the board with healthcare right now that, that uh, you know, there's a shortage of, of healthcare providers, that, uh, that services are overloaded, there are wait lists. And so it, it is a really real need for investment in order to provide these life-saving services. Right. Stephanie, what happens next with your research then? Well, um, there are we we don't have funding to repeat this this uh, national environmental scan. I think it's important for that to continue so that we can continue to monitor change over time to see what happens uh, with uh, as the pandemic changes in its nature. Um, and and uh, you know we're also seeing things like uh, community of practices that popped up regionally and now are available nationally for providers. Uh, uh, the updates to guidelines in different provinces and the addition of training, as you mentioned before. And those measures have uh, the opportunity to increase the confidence uh, of providers with this relatively emerging uh, service that is is new to their practice. And I think that uh, monitoring those changes over time is important. All right. Well, thank you so much for explaining it to us. Thank you very much for having me. That's Stephanie Glegg, postdoctoral fellow at the BC Centre on Substance Use at UBC. Part of this research project was taking a look at how many uh, safe supply sites there were uh, just before the pandemic, so starting in March of 2020 versus just a few months later in May of 2020. And what they found was because of the pandemic, because of COVID-19 and the concerns over that, they saw an increase. They saw 21 sites in March of 2020 versus 60 new sites in May of 2020, a 285% increase. And this is to be able to prescribe safe supply to people, something that many advocates say will eventually make a difference in our overdose crisis. I know some people remain skeptical on that, but lots of researchers clearly are studying this. This is Mornings with Simi. That song right there is called Skoden. It's a song by Digging Roots. That's a Juno-winning husband and wife music duo. It's Raven Kanatakta, Polson Lahash, and Shoshana Kish. So today, June 21st, is Indigenous Peoples Day. And our show contributor, Raji Sohal, is here to talk about a music and arts festival that you definitely want to know about. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, the festival's called Talking Stick. It's put on by Full Circle First Nations Performance Group. It's in its 21st year, and it's big. It draws an average of 20,000 attendees over the course of their two-and-a-half-week festival. We're actually in the middle of it right now, so already there have been some theater performances, art presentations. There was a show about Indigenous tattoos. There was a powwow honoring the children who went to residential schools. And tonight, there's a dance performance, actually, at Scotia Bank Dance Centre, and that's at 8 o'clock. The show's inspired by the knowledge of uh, Michif plant medicines in local Indigenous culture. And there's a really cool thing that I want to check out. It's a, a medicine workshop happening this Sunday. It's a free workshop, and it's going to teach people about plants that grow along the coast of BC and how they're blended together to make medicinal teas. So lots of stuff, including 
uh, a partnership, a, a, pro, a co-presentation that's happening with the Jazz Fest. And it's going to be an Indigenous summer stage that's going to happen on a bunch of days coming up. And I talked to Robert Thompson. He's the curator of the music aspect of the Talking Stick Festival. And I asked him what it means for an Indigenous artist to share their culture, their art in this festival that's devoted to just that. And he understands the opportunity firsthand because that's actually how he got a start at the fest. It was as a performer himself, uh, almost 15 years ago. He tells me what, what that was like. It was a huge deal because that's the community I grew up in. My first like opportunities were playing, you know, really indigenous specific community events. So I grew up listening to, uh, you know, uh, Digging Roots and we got to play a show with Digging Roots at the Talking Stick Festival. So it really did mean a lot to me. It was also like a chance just to see all different you know, indigenous cultures from uh, across Turtle Island and all over the world. There was even artists from New Zealand. So it was really just like a really good chance to explore, share culture, see similarities, see what's different. And um, uh, a lot of those relationships I built all those years ago as as a younger sort of newer musician uh, have continued today. It's really neat, Simi. That's actually not uncommon to happen for the festival. There's a lot of people who came up in the fest as a performer. They went on to take up uh, mentorship or training in the Full Circle's various programs to help them learn about uh, music administration and arts administration. And I asked Robert about how um, the backdrop of the festival has changed because although it's been around for two decades, it's only in the last year that we've come to learn about the unmarked graves, uh, received the Pope's apology and, and this kind of thing. And this is the first time the festival has actually resumed, right, since Kamloops uh, has come to light. So we talk about a national reckoning about how non-Indigenous people have had their eyes opened to our history and the impact of all of that that happened then, what the impact that has today. It's a lot. Here's Rob Thompson again. I think we could be positive because I see the resilience. I see all the beautiful things that come out. You know, I see the fact that like my family was, you know, my father was disconnected from his family. And when I was 10 year old, years old, we got to have a pot latch walking back in and Haida Gwaii and his family. And then I got to go there and visit my family. And I knew the truth of my family growing up. And uh, when my daughter was born, we got to bring her to Haida Gwaii right away to meet her aunties and uncles and stuff like that. So that is like, that, that to me makes me hopeful because I know lots of people are now experiencing that. And that's like a bit of a personal connection to it. I just feel like there's been so much happening for all these years. And now it's just like, there's just like this new discovery with all this bad news and history coming up. I feel like people were crying tears for the first time. And I, and I understand that it's really, it's really sad. It is really sad to acknowledge what has happened and what's been happening. But I also have been feeling that, you know, and my family's been feeling that and other families were feeling that their entire lives. So like that doesn't fade, you know, it was just like the top news story. And now it just doesn't feel like it is. It feels like, like people are, it's lost people's attention. And I just don't understand why I just don't get it. It's tricky because at the same time, I do feel when I get together and we put on these events and we celebrate indigenous talent does make me hopeful. That's so interesting, Raji, because there was the hope, you know, when that happened a year ago, that it would stick with people. Like, it's been a learning experience, but I guess it isn't as kind of prominent as it was a year ago. 
Yeah, Simeon, it was a lot for all of us to learn at once. And we keep hearing that Indigenous communities were aware that this had happened, but that they weren't talking about it openly and publicly. And I think it was traumatic for so many for it to come out. And and non-Indigenous people have the privilege of moving on from that news story. But for Indigenous people, that is life. That is their family. That is their history. And they see remnants of it today. Uh, you heard Rob talking about how tricky it is to, to, you know, come to terms with that, with that trauma, but also be proud of who they are and to be hopeful for the future. But he said something so wise that I want to share. He was talking to me about how change is good if it's slow. I do think slow is maybe the way it needs to be. You know, like maybe, maybe slow is better because this is like, there's a lot to reconciling and it's not going to be a fast process. It's going to take, you know, hundreds of years probably, right. For us to figure this out. Um, because, you know, it, it, it was hundreds of years of oppression and ongoing. So I do think slow change is okay. I do think changing people's minds slowly or people understanding more slowly. And I think, you know, I have seen a shift with a lot of people that I know who are asking more questions. I'm definitely hopeful for the future. That is very wise because learning it slowly will be, I guess, hopeful that it will see people won't be as resistant to it if it comes along slowly, I guess. Yeah, Simi, I think we're, I mean, we're in the news business. We're always asking ourselves, how do you make people care about stories, right? Like after the initial news story, how do you invite people to to care, to find out more, to educate themselves, to commit to being a part of the change? And I, I myself have always thought, you know, when we realize something needs to change, you got to charge at it. You got to be hard and fast. But um, Rob's right. I think that change should come about slowly so that people can digest it and work through it. None of this has been uh, easy uh, history or knowledge to learn. It's been really hard and difficult and emotional, and the emotions are still raw for a lot of people. So I think um, just as we can in whatever way that we can to teach ourselves about what has happened and how we can make a difference today, I think is important. It is. Thank you so much for telling us about that. Oh, and what's that festival one more time? Yeah, it's the Talking Stick Festival, um, and they're doing such amazing things. You can find out more at fullcircle.ca slash talking stick. The fest is already at the midpoint, but there's still so much fun stuff coming up as part of it, including music and uh, this cool medicine workshop that's coming up, as well as uh, dance and other performances. Sounds great. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Simi. That's our Raji Sohal there talking about the Talking Stick Festival. You can definitely check them out online for more information. This is Mornings with Simi. Racism, bullying, assault, these are all things the hockey world has had to deal with the last couple of years in a long overdue reckoning. And we're not talking just pro hockey here. Obviously, a lot of stories coming out of the NHL, but the amateur level of hockey as well. Hockey Canada officials were testifying and took questions yesterday in front of a House of Commons a committee, and it really showed people about the darker side of junior hockey in this country, too. Now, for more on this, let's go to Dan Robson. Dan is an author and senior enterprise writer at The Athletic. And listen, if you don't subscribe, you absolutely should. Dan, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Simi. So how did we get to this place? Why were these Hockey Canada officials testifying in front of these legislators yesterday? 
Well, it, it goes back to uh, about a month when uh, the story emerged that there had been a settlement in a um, an alleged sexual assault case brought against the um, uh, Canadian Junior uh, Hockey Canada, the CHL, the Canadian Hockey League, and um, eight unnamed major junior players um, sending back to an alleged uh, sexual assault that occurred um, after a Hockey Canada golf tournament in London, Ontario, back in June of 2018. Um, and, and the revelation of a settlement uh, that happened in that case that kind of kept everything quiet came out in the, in the press and, um, and this uh, committee was called to investigate. Right, because Hockey Canada receives a portion of its funding from the government and the government wanted to make sure that they weren't using government funding to settle this lawsuit. Yes, exactly. It receives a um, every year a, a small portion of its um, of its budget comes from uh, public funding, and so currently there's there's an uh, an audit of Hockey Canada's finances to make sure that no public funds were used in this settlement. Okay, and so this settlement, this story is horrific. I've been following along in the writing mm-hmm. that has been done in the Athletic on this, but can you give us an idea of what happened involving this lawsuit? So, uh, I mean, the allegations are, are, are quite disturbing, as you say, um, in the statement of claim that come out. But essentially, um, a, a, the, the complainant said that um, she, she would, had been attacked by um, or, or assaulted by uh, these eight players in a um, hotel room after this tournament um, that, um, you know, there's this, she'd been made to say that she was sober on camera and um, made a shower after the assault. There's very disturbing detail that, that occurred. Um, that came out in the statement of claim. Um, and, and essentially, you know, what's happened since is obviously none of the players have been named. Hockey Canada uh, yesterday said that they don't know who the alleged players involved were. Um, their own investigation didn't reveal that. And its own code of conduct doesn't require that its players participate in ex- internal investigations like this. So uh, among the people that were at that golf tournament that could have been involved um, in the alleged attack, um, only uh, yesterday was revealed about a dozen or so participated uh, in the investigation, while several uh, did not. Okay, the details when you describe them like that, Dan, just sound so ridiculous. So there was enough here for them to pay out money in this settlement. It, these right. accusations were so shocking. And yet Hockey Canada didn't require that the players participate or for them to even find out exactly who was there. Yeah, I mean, this is what... Um, if you were watching the hearing yesterday, I think many of the MPs that questioned hockey Canada officials found quite baffling was that just inherent in its own code of conduct and in sort of the statement of this is sort of what we all adhere to as, as people representing um, the, the, you know, the best that Canadian hockey has to offer um, within that this code of conduct does not compel its own players to participate in, in something as serious as, as this internal investigation. Um, and, and Hockey Canada itself um, said it was not able to reveal the names based on the advice of the law firm that did the internal investigation for it. So um, all around, I mean, the big question yesterday was about accountability. It was who is accountable for these kinds of things. I mean, this is something, as you, as you mentioned earlier, the, there's been a reckoning in hockey in many different areas. Um, but this specific kind of horrific event is something that if you look back through the decades um, has has occurred uh, or has come before the courts many times in charges and allegations and it's something that that um, hockey itself and, and its governing bodies have failed to reckon with. Yeah did it surprise you like the testimony that you heard yesterday from Hockey Canada it just seemed to me like they were kind of missing the point on some stuff. 
Well, it didn't surprise me in that I, I didn't expect much to come of it, to be honest. I mean, I expected that, you know, they would have been counseled on what they could say and what they would say and that they would say the right things, which is, you know, they're they're looking at their processes and, and they've, you know, for example, they're um, at that event in 2018, there was some underage drinking that went on and they're looking to make sure that none of that happens again. So I think that what they stated was sort of the, um, I would argue sort of the sort of, you know, superficial things we've seen in the past. We're going to do more training. We're going to do um, look into this further to make sure it doesn't happen again. But it has happened again and again and again as you look back. And so um, I think as, you know, as sort of you would like to have seen more of um, and sort of an effort to sort of take accountability yesterday. But I think that um, many, of the, many of the MPs in, in the hearing um, were quite clear that they felt that that was not happening. Right. Because what I heard as well, too, were a number of stories here about players who later go on to get drafted, who get, you know, million dollar contracts. And, and none of this seems to affect them. Like we had that happen just with the Montreal Canadiens in this last draft, didn't we? Uh, yes, yes. There was um, one player who had been um, basically convicted of, of sharing um, uh, images uh, of the sexual nature without consent um, and went on to be drafted by the Montreal Canadiens. And, and, and as you said, this, we've seen this sort of time and, and again. And um, I, I went back and looked at a bunch of you know, previous cases back from the 2000s and uh, 90s and 80s. And, and this is sort of um, the, the tone of, of all the conversation tends to be you know, what about the lucrative careers? What about the future? What about what can happen for these, um, the, the people who are alleged to have been involved? And, and very little concern about the victims. Um, and in some cases, um, the, a victim, a, a sort of a, a turning the, a lens on, on the complainant and saying, well, what about this person's past? And what about this? I mean, this is going back quite a ways, but it becomes um, historically in, in, in the world of hockey, the culture of hockey is, has always been to sort of protect its own and make sure that the, 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 the code of the game, the, the integrity of the game stands up, even though it's crumbling uh, in, in, inside of it. Yeah. So, Dan, do you think any significant change will come about? Did you hear anything in the tone yesterday from Hockey Canada that they realized the kind of the severity of what's happening? I, I think that they they certainly didn't downplay the severity of it. I mean, I think we have to say they did say we we acknowledge that this is incredibly serious and we take it incredibly serious and we uh, are promising to do better. I mean, they 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 said those things. I mean, the, the reality is, it's I, I'm I'm skeptical that change will come. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that, um, and as many uh, of the MPs at the hearing stated, that more uh, will happen in the future if, if something significant doesn't change. Now, one thing that I do think is changing somewhat, though, is I, uh, for a story I wrote about the Athletic, I spoke with Sheldon Kennedy, who um, does a lot of uh, work in, in this area. He is one of the victims of um, former coach uh, Graham James um, from the Super current Broncos. And he stated back in the 1990s, when he came out about the allegations, people thought that he was going to wreck hockey, which is a lot of criticism about that. Oh, don't paint all hockey players with the same brush and all that kind of stuff. Um, but he said the one thing that is changing is that these stories are coming to light and they're staying in the public more often. We're at, more people are asking more questions. Uh, so I think that the pressure is on. Uh, the, the, there's a microscope on Hockey Canada now. And I, I hope that that um, continues to, to put pressure for change and that we see um, you know, we, we don't see a story like this again, frankly, because yeah. I mean, it's, it's just a horrifying, it's just absolutely horrifying for anything. You know, you just think of the, the, the victims and, and people who've 
um, been involved in these cases. I mean, it's just something that our, our game uh, that, that people, so many people across Canada love uh, should be better than. Absolutely. Uh, Dan, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Dan Robson, author and senior enterprise writer at The Athletic. You should definitely be subscribing to The Athletic. They do great work on stories just like this one, dealing with Hockey Canada. And, you know, Dan there referenced Sheldon Kennedy. And, you know, I thought having that story and and being in the news business when that story came out and how seismic, how huge it was that, oh, this this was definitely going to change things. This stuff wouldn't happen anymore because look how brave and amazing and heroic Sheldon Kennedy is. And that here he is all these years later, still fighting to get the word out and still fighting to make change. It shows you how resistant that institution, that hockey institution is to change. This story, like Hockey Canada testifying yesterday, some of the details that came out about these cases, these things that they haven't investigated, things that they've tried to sweep under the rug. I mean, really take a moment and read about that if you get 